This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brent. Today, we explore the experiences of Black Caribbean youth in the United Kingdom and the United States. My guest is Duran Wallace, an assistant professor of sociology and education at Brandeis University. What I argue essentially in this book is that the use of culture to explain black students' success or failure in schools is not only tricky, it's a trap. And it's a trap because we overemphasize the importance of culture, right? And we undermine the importance of national policy contexts, the order of migration, a range of structural and institutional factors that alongside culture can shape what students experience in schools or what their success um, or failure might be in school. Deron Wallace's new book is The Culture Trap. Ethnic Expectations and Unequal Schooling for Black Youth. Deron Wallace, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on your new book. It's really fantastic. In the book, you talk all about living in London and in New York. How on earth did you come about spending so much time in these two rather different contexts? So I spent a fair amount of time in these global cities, but prior to living in these global cities, I was born and raised in Jamaica and spent a fair amount of time, much of my childhood in the Caribbean, and then moved to New York City to complete uh, secondary school, went to university in the US, and then came to the UK to pursue uh, postgraduate, what are called postgraduate studies here, what we call graduate studies in the US. And in the process of doing much of this work, I've been in the classroom, I've been an after-school teacher or after-school program manager, I've been a sort of a non-profit leader, I've, I've done a fair amount of work in and outside the classroom. But during my time in London, I came across what for me seemed like a perplexing paradox where I, one day in a chance conversation with a, a Black Caribbean teacher with salt and pepper hair I call Miss Bell, she expressed to me in, in no uncertain terms her surprise that as a Black Caribbean person that I could study at the University of Cambridge. She was, she was shocked by that. And I asked her about why that was the case. And, you know, she revealed the sort of persistent negative framing of Black Caribbeans in the UK context. And I remember being shell-shocked by that because in the US, or at least in New York City, where I went to secondary school, the dominant framing of Caribbeans was quite different. It was largely positive. You know, Black Caribbeans in New York were perceived to be hardworking, high-achieving, stereotyped as having multiple jobs, you know, chasing the American dream. And so I remember being really shocked. And I, I just remember going home and I was talking with everybody I could talk to to figure out this issue. I remember leafing through my sociology books and my black studies books and my comparative and international ed books. And I was talking to faculty members to say, surely someone must have explored how the same ethnic group can be framed so differently across two national contexts. And then what was really peculiar in all of this was that in both national contexts, it was being argued both in sort of common sense articulations and even sort of public political expressions that the, the dominant reason for their achievement, high achievement in the US, as it were, and underachievement in the UK was Caribbean culture. And I kept thinking, well, how could it be Caribbean culture when the same people with the same culture are framed differently across two national contexts? That's what brought me to this work was really an attempt to, to answer this question because I, I didn't see it in any comparative and international ed studies. I didn't see it in sociology. I didn't see it in black studies. And though I didn't anticipate it being a book, to be very honest with you, this work nonetheless was my answer. First to Miss Bell, that uh, five foot one firebrand black teacher in South London. First, it was an answer to her. She was very interested in understanding this, again, perplexing paradox. But it was also an attempt to sort of assuage the sort of 
that the restless provocations my conversations with her provoked. I know this may sound odd, but I remember the first night I literally couldn't sleep. Like my, I couldn't still my mind because I remember just working with students. Now this wasn't abstract to me. This wasn't a set of statistical data points. I'm thinking about students I had worked with and their faces would run across my mind. And I was trying to understand better or more about that student's experience why they were being framed so negatively, particularly in the London context. And what I came to learn was that there was a, a deeper, richer history here. And it's not just about London and New York City. It's also about the Caribbean, right? And that's one of the core arguments I make in the project, uh, in the book, that you cannot possibly understand the experiences of Caribbean immigrants to either London or New York City if you don't understand their perceptions of the US and the UK from the Caribbean. So you have to go back home, right, in order to better understand the perceptions these immigrants will have of both the US and UK state schools. When you were spending time in both of these places, in London, Black Caribbeans were sort of seen and perceived as this notion of like a failing minority. But in New York, they were sort of seen as the model minority, overachieving, doing really well in school, etc. Or what I call not a model minority, a Black model minority, which is framed differently, right? And, and politically relative to other um, ethno-racial groups. Right. So a black model minority, because I guess it's in distinction to African-Americans in this case. Exactly right. Exactly right. Exactly. Not to whites, not to Asian-Americans, but used quite strategically to speak to the culture of specific groups and why they achieve or not. And then in both cases, the reasoning given why there's these different perception is based on culture of potentially the, you know, the same ethnic or national group in these two different contexts. So, I mean, it's quite a um, paradox, as you say. So, you know, I guess thinking about London, how big is the Black Caribbean population? Like, how big of a group is it in the country and in the city? What I argue centrally in this book is that the use of culture to explain Black students' success or failure in schools is not only tricky, it's a trap. And it's a trap because we overemphasize the importance of culture, right? And we undermine the, the importance of national policy contexts, the order of migration, a range of structural and institutional factors that alongside culture can shape what students experience in schools or what their success or failure might be in schools. To your question, though, about the size of Black Caribbean population, um, it's a really, really important one. First, we need to understand that the UK is, is much smaller than the United States, <laughs> right? That London and New York City are global cities, yes, but that they also differ in size and population. It's also really important for us to understand that up until um, the 2011 census, um, that was the first time that Black Africans outnumbered Black Caribbeans as now the majority of the Black population in the United Kingdom. Right. Prior to that, Black Caribbeans had been the sort of largest Black ethnic group. Nevertheless, if we think about the numbers, they're still quite small. Right. We're not talking about millions of people here. We're talking less than 500,000 people. Right. And we've seen ebbs and flows of this. Now, if we were to look at data now where sort of gentrification is sort of you know, pushing Black Caribbean families both out of London. Those numbers are dwindling and we still see, you know, strongholds in particular boroughs. But what I'm trying to get at is that we're not talking about significant numbers here. And nevertheless, there's a longer, what's more powerful than the numbers are the sort of the strength of the representation, what Stuart Hall calls the politics of representation that we can see in the United Kingdom from the late 40s to, to present this persistent 
negative misrepresentation of Caribbean people and Caribbean culture as being an underachieving group. So, you know, Black Caribbeans in education now are disproportionately represented as having, and I quote, emotional and behavioral difficulties. They are more than three times as likely in London to be excluded from schools relative to their white peers. They do not fare as well on national GCSE uh, attainment. So, for you know, our international audience, I'm referring to sort of nationwide um, end of secondary school exam in key subjects. They fare less well than almost every other ethno-racial group except the gypsy and, and traveler communities that we know because of their migration patterns that often informs instability in schooling, right, for, for gypsy and Roma people. But for Black Caribbeans, they consistently remain this group that, that people can't figure out why it is that they're quote-unquote underachieving, right? Not paying so much attention to the disadvantage that's been structured, which I get at in the historical analysis I provide in the book, but really thinking that this is a matter of culture. And with without, if we have these national blinders on, it's easy to give in to this notion that it's culture, right? It's easy to think that there's something peculiar to this group here, but what this book opens up, it, it, it pushes us away from the national blinders and helps us to see how it is, in fact, the, the context of reception that informs the perception of the culture and, and the power it has in that specific national and institutional context. And so before we get into some of the differences in history between the U.S. migration and, and, and U.K. migration of Black Caribbeans, what's the population size of Black Caribbeans in New York City and in the U.S. by way of comparison? So to your question, it's really important to pay attention to these to these figures. As I mentioned to you, in, in the case of London, um, we're not speaking about, it, based in, in 2011, we had um, just about 300,000 Black Caribbeans in London. In New York, however, there were very many more. And, and you can say, oh, this that means it's a radically different experience. Well, th there's a reason for that. The waves of migration from the Caribbean to the U.S. are ongoing. Immigration policies permit every year swaths or groups of Black Caribbeans to continue to enter the United States. You know, immigration policies to the U.K., however, uh, from the Caribbean are much more restrictive. And, and so migration from the Caribbean have re has really slowed to a trickle, the sociologist um, Phil Kassinitz suggests. Whereas, you know, it's ongoing in the U.S. And that's what another sociologist of immigration, Thomas Jimenez, refers to as replenishing ethnicity. And ultimately, in the book, I talk about how the sort of ongoing migration flows of Black Caribbeans to New York City and the sort of the trickle, as it were, from the Caribbean to London has a profound impact on the representation of success or failures. What we are seeing is sort of immigrant success in one context, as we've seen for a number of different groups around the world. But that nuance gets collapsed under the guise of culture. That is part of what I'm saying this trap is. Culture becomes this sort of catch-all category that sort of conceals the complexities of what's actually at work in a particular school, institutional context, or national context. So once again, the numbers to your question, they matter. But what's more important to go back to Stuart Hall is the representation that occurs, whether or not that be 300,000 in London or, or you know, nearly 700,000 in New York. What matters is the, the political work of the representation done in each city context with that specific agricultural group. And as you said earlier, it also matters about the perceptions within the Caribbean about these two global cities. So how do people in the Caribbean understand these two different 
cities? I love this question because I have to admit, I, to answer that question, I had to go speak to Caribbean parents. And that was not what I anticipated doing with this project. So, you know, I, I began talking with anybody who's done sort of ethnographic work, but qualitative work with young people know that you give consent forms, they often don't return them. And so one of the things I tried to do was to sort of engage their parents to see if they had any questions or concerns or had their parents call me. And it was in conversation again with black mothers, both in London and New York City, black Caribbean mothers who would say, tell me the questions you're going to ask my child. And they would say, oh, they can't answer that. You need to come talk to me. <laughs> and so I would go, I did go talk to them. And in the process, I realized something I did not even anticipate, even though I grew up in the Caribbean myself. And this was also true for me. And yet I didn't recognize it's significant for these parents. The influence of the British Empire in shaping Caribbean education afforded Caribbean parents who came to Britain a sense of Britain as another home. They were familiar with the British educational system because the Caribbean educational system is structured to mirror the British educational system. So while they anticipated for their children entering new schools, they thought it would be better than the schools they had in the Caribbean. And these parents described in great detail the sort of material resources they anticipated would be better, right? So what Prudence Carter, sociologist Prudence Carter calls the hard structures of schooling, right? So they were looking forward to better buildings, greater technology, you know, state-of-the-art facilities, no tuition. These are the things that the parents spoke of because they anticipated, based on colonialism, that British schooling would be better than Caribbean schooling. They also, in some cases, took for granted the differences between Caribbean education, the British educational system, because the structures were often so similar, right? By that, I mean primary school in Britain goes from years one to six, you know, same in the Caribbean, right? And secondary school starts from year seven to 12, same in the Caribbean. Then you sort of move up to upper six, lower six and upper six, same thing. Then you go on to university, very, very similar. So that's, again, the influence of what I would call the educational legacies of the British Empire, right? That um, Britain didn't simply bring to the Caribbean this colonial rule of law. They also brought with them a model of schooling that shaped the perceptions Caribbean parents had of what schooling might be like for their children in a different context. They anticipated that British schooling would be better, but that the structure of schooling would be the same. So their children with better facilities should fare well. And they had to learn over time that that didn't work out quite well for their children. They learned to distrust the British educational system, that despite structural similarities between Caribbean education or Caribbean schooling and British schooling, the soft structures of schooling, that's what Prudence Carter calls it, the sort of relational dimensions of schooling were very, very different. Teachers didn't necessarily believe that Caribbean students were going to be high achieving. They didn't hold positive perceptions of these students, right? And as a result, parents had to learn over time, often through error, to be hypervigilant in support of their children's education. But they learned that through trial and error or after failing a child or two, that they could not trust the British educational system in a way that they anticipated doing owing to colonialism. And what about the US, the Caribbean perception of US and, you know, New York City and that the school systems there. Thanks so much for that, Will, because that was also another surprising element. It was almost a complete opposite. Caribbean, Caribbean parents did not trust, not just New York City, public schools. And again, when I say public schools here, I'm referring to state schools or government-sponsored schools. Not only did they, it's, not only did they harbor some element of distrust for schools at large, but urban or quote-unquote inner city state schools in particular in New York City, 
they had very, very little trust in. And that's because, again, the, the cultural influence of the American empire, right? It's media culture, as it were. So the dominance of the, you know, U.S. media in the Caribbean through its cable networks exports to the Caribbean this perception of these, you know, dilapidated schools with conflict ridden, drug torn neighborhoods that these schools are in, right? Through movies like Lean on Me. These are the movies that these parents were referring to that had already schooled them about what schooling would be like in New York City before they even got there. So they came in being hypervigilant, not wanting their children to even go, in some cases, to New York City public schools. And when they did have to send their children to New York City public schools, or as I note in the book, when, quote unquote, those public schools, as they described them based on the movies they saw, became their public schools because of the segregation they experienced in their neighborhoods, they were hypervigilant about the kind and quality of education their children received in those schools because they didn't trust them to begin with. Very, very different perceptions going in. So then you've spent so much time doing these sort of comparative ethnographies in these two different schools. What is it like for black Caribbean youth today to go through schools in London and in New York? It's a complex picture and I spent conducted fieldwork over the course of three years. And what I realized, let me start first with the London case, is that there's a long-standing um, narrative, Caribbean underachievement, that shapes both policy discussions, if we think about the more recent Sewell report, which continued to frame Black Caribbeans as an underachieving group. But there's a longer history here that still shapes the experiences of Caribbean students. As I mentioned, they're still disproportionately excluded from schools, still disproportionately labeled as having emotional behavioral difficulties. But what I learned in the process of doing this work was that in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, Black Caribbeans uh, were framed as, and I quote, educationally subnormal. That was the language of the state. I'm going to let that sit in because I remember when I was, again, this was Miss Bell basically invited me to her black supplementary school and there was a pastor nearby and she introduced me to him and he was the one who said, young man, you need to pay attention to our history, right? I'm not a historian. <laughs> and he was the one who said, you know, they used to label us as being educationally subnormal. And I remember being shell-shocked. But yes, what I'm trying to share here is that the work of the state in shaping the representation of cultures needs to be accounted for when we think about culture as a formula for success or failure in a particular national context or for a particular group. The experiences of Black Caribbean students are, to your, your question, uh, incredibly complicated. Some might fare well, but the data by and large still shows the group, Black Caribbeans nationally, and in London in particular, as a, as a largely quote-unquote underachieving group relative to other ethno-racial groups. What I was interested in are not simply the figures. I wanted to understand how do they experience this culture trap, this sort of over-enunciation or over-emphasis on culture as the formula for their failure in London. And so that's what brought me into the hallways and into the gymnasiums and on the sports fields and into the classrooms of state schools was to sit amongst these young people and to not simply understand these figures, but to get a sense of how they experienced these perceptions. And so how did they, like, you know, did these students that you met, did they sort of reinforce some of these sort of stereotypical understandings of what Black Caribbean means in London or what it means in the U.S.? What I find is that there are three dominant cultural strategies that shape the cultural logics that I saw at work in both London and New York City. The first is distinctiveness, the idea of being different from, and in some cases better than, a more uh, stigmatized group. The second is deference, this belief that good behavior and comportment will shape high achievement and success. 
And the last is defiance, right? So an attempt at pushing back against um, structures of inequality that they may sense or experience in school. What I did see, however, is that while these three cultural strategies were of import in both London and New York City, they didn't play out the same way in London and New York City, right? And so, yeah, so let me start first with distinctiveness, right? In the New York City context where Black Caribbean students were largely framed as this high-achieving Black model minority, they invested in what I called collective distinctiveness. By that I mean, even when only one student was high achieving or only two or three students were really high achieving, they claimed the success of that few as representation, as a representation of the collective. We are distinctive. We are collectively good because the dominant stereotype is one that is positive of the group. And that's what I saw. I didn't necessarily see that Black Caribbean students, at least in the school where I did my work, were necessarily altogether high achieving. But they clung to the success of the few as a representation of the many and suggested that it was their culture that made it so. In London, however, it was quite different because what I saw was that what I saw play out was what I call individual distinctiveness. In a context where Black Caribbean identities were largely stigmatized, individual Black Caribbean students sought to separate themselves from other stigmatized Black Caribbean students. They would say, I am different, right? I am not like these Yardis. That was perhaps one of the most common lines. Yardis being this sort of working class, low income, largely stereotyped, highly criminalized group of Caribbean immigrants in London. And so they would say, I am not like these Yardis. What we see in both national contexts, however, is that both groups are finding a more stigmatized group in order to elevate themselves. So in New York City, Black Caribbeans are saying, we are collectively distinctive. And this is particularly true because of our culture relative to African-Americans, right? Particularly working class African-Americans. In London, even amongst their own ethno-racial group, right? Even amongst their own ethnic group, Black Caribbeans would say, I'm not like these Yardis. Again, low income and working class Black Caribbean people. And what I see through this cross-national analysis is that what makes the sort of distancing from stigma possible is the demotion of another stigmatized group. And in this case, what we see across the two contexts is that it is low income and working class Black people who are placed at the bottom in both city contexts. And that's what happens when we remove these national blindness. We get to see a bit more about global class and racial structures, right, that may play out quite differently across different national contexts. The issue of social class becomes hugely important when thinking about distinctiveness because you need to other yourself from some group, right? And so that becomes the way to do it. Or separate yourself from the other. That's part of what I refer to in the book as the secret life of social class. Because in all these representations of culture, what's at work here, What I, I, to add a nuance here, is that I saw that middle-class Black Caribbean students were faring well in the two-city context. But those student success were being represented as, in New York City, it was being represented as an expression of their culture. And in London, interestingly enough, their success was being deemed an exception to their culture. Again, I would just say, I, you know, I just found all of this, this quiet class work under the guise of culture fascinating. And what I wanted to illuminate was really what gets, what we ignore when we use culture as a master code for understanding inequality. It allows us not to pay attention to how social class might shape representations of culture. I think that's such a great insight about how culture can actually erase, in a sense, some of our understanding, our deep understanding as scholars. And also about this issue of race, too. You know, sometimes culture seems to have just sort of turned into another way of talking about race, 
without talking about race. Exactly right. It's what I call it. Culture gets used as an alibi for race and racism, right? And again, in this moment where anti-racism is increasingly popular flashpoint or area of interest for folks, part of what I argue in the book is a need to go deeper to understand the relationship between race and culture, right? The quiet, clandestine, the tricky ways in which we talk about race without even using the word race at all, right? And culture often gets used as a code for mobilizing that formula. And so what about this issue of deference. You said that was another sort of cultural logic at play. Before I get into that, let let me just say, you know, it's really interesting to, to name these cultural logics and they are of considerable influence, at least on the young people I spent time talking to uh, and hanging out with. But it's as a former youth worker, as a former teacher, as a former community organizer, I know it's easy to blame specific groups for inequalities. You could hear this and say, well, really what happened was that they just reinforced the inequalities themselves, right? And what that does is it, it reinforces or it, it, it lays the, the, the blame at the feet of these young people. And I just want to make a note here so that, you know, listeners may not do that. And I had to catch, you know, call this out in my own book. What these young people are doing, they're strategic and savvy political actors. You know, try to see school students as being not just school students. They're political actors. <laughs> they recognize and they're in, in pursuit of power. They're in pursuit of, in some cases, challenging inequalities when it, it challenges them, negatively impacts them. And like a number of us, they may not even see the inequalities when they benefit from them. In, in that respect, these young people who mobilize distinctiveness, deference and defiance are no different from us. And I'm hopeful that when readers read the book that they see how we in our everyday lives, for me as a man, right, I as a black man, I'm cognizant of, you know, anti-blackness and of racism, right, because it has a negative impact on my life. But the structures of heteronormative patriarchy, I might not see, right, because I benefit from them. Right. I have to take responsibility for that. Yes. But it also means I have to pay attention to the wider structures that shape my uh, limited understanding of heteronormative patriarchy. And I share that to say these gender dynamics then, to your point about deference, are really important, right? And again, can be easily misunderstood, easily ignored when we pay attention to culture. What I realized was that in both national contexts, in London and in US and the UK, but in London and New York City in particular, there is this national policy narrative, this sort of a public panic about boys underachievement, black boys underachievement in particular, often at the expense of black girls, right? Or with us not paying as much attention to the educational experiences of black girls. What I realized is that deference, this belief in sort of good behavior and comportment played out differently for black Caribbean girls in both London and New York City differently than black Caribbean boys in both London and New York City. So the comparison then shifts in that case. What I found was that for black Caribbean boys, they practice what I call complementary deference or deference for getting praised or for receiving praise, right? In this context where these black Caribbean boys were deemed or black boys generally were deemed to be this group that was on the edge of failure or that they were worried about, their behavior, the slight adjustment in their behavior earned them praise. But black girls who perform the same kind of behavior, by which I mean showing up to class, sitting, you know, prepared, um, listening to the teacher, yes, ma'am, no, sir. Black girls were not praised for this because of what I call compulsory deference. They're supposed to be deferential. They're girls. That's what girls do. And so we see how this, despite 
boys and girls investing, black Caribbean boys and girls investing in this belief that their behavior will enable their success. They were rewarded differently based on whether or not they were a black Caribbean boy versus whether or not they were a black Caribbean girl. And we lose that when we just think that this is all a matter of culture. So another way that culture sort of collapses some of this complexity or veils it or, you know, is a facade to a much sort of deeper engagement here. The last cultural logic that you brought up and you, you write about in your book is this notion of resistance. So the way in which Black Caribbean youth in these two different contexts sort of resist some of these, let's say, ethnic expectations, as you call them. How does that play out in these two different contexts? Yeah, so that's a third cultural strategy, defiance. And and what I found was that Black Caribbeans in New York practiced um, what I called interpersonal defiance. So when teachers challenged them, right, and said, you're supposed to be hardworking and high achieving. In one case, a teacher said, and I quote, your mother told me not to let you settle. This students responded to that as, and I quote, teachers using our culture against us as what the sociologists of education, Diane Ray would call as an ideological whip for getting them in line and pursuing achievement. In those cases, these students resisted the acts of those teachers, those individuals at an interpersonal level. The school wasn't the problem. That teacher don't like me. That teacher is the problem, right? Those are the, 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 the sort of common quotes I heard from students, right? So that's what I call interpersonal defiance. In London, on the other hand, where students, um, a significant number of students wanted to leave this particular school, where they felt as though they were being largely misrepresented in this school, they were not being given a fair chance, they didn't necessarily think that it, the teachers were the problem exclusively, they thought the school was the problem. And that's what I call institutional defiance. Now, to be clear, there are examples of institutional defiance in, Lon in New York City and interpersonal defiance in New York. I want to nuance the argument here. I didn't see examples in either national context. Both play out, played out in, in each city context. But what I emphasize are the dominant representations in each. What I saw was that interpersonal defiance was the dominant formula, right, or the dominant cultural logic amongst Black Caribbeans in New York City. And institutional defiance was the dominant representation or dominant formula amongst those in London. So you, you started this journey, you sort of talk about in the beginning of the book, about your conversations with Miss Bell, who you, you introduced in this episode earlier. And after years of work, you go back to Miss Bell and sort of explain your findings. And you go through all these different logics and you explain the culture trap to her. Do you think she was convinced? Like, did, did she agree with you that you sort of um, made sense of this paradox that you initially started out exploring all those years ago? So, you know, Miss Bell is not one who's easily convinced. <laughs> We'd worked together for so many years, right? First, when she shared with me her thoughts, that sort of grim, gray um, fall morning, um, I'd only been working with her for about a year at that point. And she's a five foot one, dark skinned black woman with salt and pepper here. She's a firebrand with a passion for racial and gender justice in the context of education. She led a black supplementary school every Saturday and had done so for years. She frequently reminded me over and over again that she's been teaching for as long as I've been alive. Like, I mean, it's just a regular running joke with her. But what was really important though was that in the end, when I explained much of what I, you know, much of what I found, um, she both questioned what I had to say and she affirmed some of what I had to say. 
So in some cases about ethnic expectations, for instance, when I mentioned that, her first line to me was, that makes sense to me already. I can see that, right? Again, the sort of distinctions we draw even among Black students based on their ethnicity to suggest that one particular group is going to be more high achieving than the other. And what that sort of ethnic formulation does, even amongst the same racial group, is it allows some leaders, some teachers, some um, school officials to escape claims of racism because it's not all black people that we don't want to work with or that we think are underachieving. It's this particular group, right? You know, she, she affirmed that. She peppered me with questions about the gender distinctions, right? And you will see that in the book, she was again talking about her concern about black Caribbean boys. She spoke about some of the boys I worked with as an organizer, some of whom became very close to me actually. And she kept saying, but what about the boys? What about the boys? And I would say, Miss Bell, we're doing what the politicians are doing. What about the girls? That's a question we ought to be asking. We, we don't have to think about the achievement of Black Caribbean boys as being over and against Black Caribbean girls. We have to hold space for both. They both have distinct strengths and needs. And to that, that was one of those, I think I described it in the book where she got up from her desk after I expressed it, because it was a back and forth for about 30 minutes. She wouldn't let up, she just wouldn't. And then she got up and she was walking towards me and she just gave me a fast, firm high five. And I mean, I thought maybe she was gonna hit me across the shoulder, but she, you know, she was like, yes, Mr. Wallace, you're right. More than just the affirmations though, are the range of questions she asked about, now what are we going to do about it? That was the, the sort of, that was a sort of organizing element. You know, we don't just study inequality for its own sake. We, we, we are invested in doing something different. And so I raised questions about the nature of teacher education, right? How in both the US and UK context, again, teacher education programs are quite different. We have a national model in the UK context. It's really state specific, in some cases city specific in the US. And I don't want to dive too much into that, but I was making clear to her that there's too little emphasis placed on the relationship between race and culture in teacher education programs, both in the US and the United Kingdom, um, and that that needs to be completely transformed. Not only that, I spoke to her about the structures, the institutional structures of inequality, like tracking in New York City and setting in London, which sort of facilitate the sort of representations of Caribbean students as being high achieving in one context or underachieving in another, and how, you know, core subjects like citizenship, we don't need to be setting or tracking students for those classes. Students, irrespective of ability, can learn one from another and, and we need to think about doing away with, 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 with setting. Um, more than that too, I you know, encouraged her to sort of, for us to be deeply committed to sort of the everyday introspective work of challenging these cultural logics, right? Of distinctiveness, deference, and defiance that many of us harbor some of these in our own everyday lives and that we ought to think about not these young people as these sort of distant social actors, but the ways in which we may adopt those cultural logics ourselves, right? In ways that sort of undermine the influence of structure and overemphasize the importance of culture in shaping student success. Put it this way, Will, we've come a long, long way in sort of rejecting the notion that uh, there's a relationship between genetics and intelligence. You mention that to anybody on the street and by and large, I can almost bet my bottom dollar. They would say, nope, there is no bearing to that, right? And if people admit that, many people would turn their heads on the streets and almost immediately say, wow, that's, that's pretty racist, right? commonplace, right? It, but we've also come a long way based on sociological research from the 80s, the 90s, in knowing that success knows no discrete culture, by, or, or, by which I mean, or color, pardon me, no discrete color, by which I mean, you know, black students, Asian students, white students, all students can succeed, right? It is not peculiar to any specific race. What we have not yet done, the myth we have not yet busted, 
is about how culture shapes success or failure. That's what I'm trying to do with this book. I'm trying to help us to understand how culture is important, and I had to acknowledge that, but culture alone does not shape success or failure. National policy context, institutional structures like tracking in New York City or SETI in London, have a profound influence. The order of black migration, right? Uh, immigration policies, whether they're, you know, they're open in one national context versus closed in another national context. Immigrant selectivity, to what extent did a particular group that's more middle class move to one country context versus a group that's more working class move into another country context? These nuances have to be held into or taken into consideration when we're thinking about the influence of culture in shaping success. It is culture and structure that informs student outcomes. That's what's at the heart of the book. And when we don't acknowledge that, I argue, we're falling into the culture trap. Daron Wallace, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your book. It really is fantastic. Thanks so much, Will. Delighted to be here. Daron Wallace is an assistant professor at Brandeis University. His new book is The Culture Trap. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Octus, Obafemi Ngunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.